how many uh, vivid dreamers do we have in here? Let me, let me explain what that means. No, I love that. You participate first. I'll explain it later. Vivid dreamers. You call yourself a vivid dreamer. Just raise your hand. Yeah, maybe as I explain it, there'll be more that say, no, 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 that is totally me. Here's what I mean by that. You wake up most mornings and you remember the dreams that you had. And in fact, a lot of mornings you wake up and the dream has kind of melded into your day and it takes you a, a little bit to like recognize what reality is. Like, and what the dream was? Like, how many people? So now when I say vivid dreamers, yeah, there's quite a few of you. Some of you are embarrassed to admit it. My wife is a vivid dreamer. I am not. But every once in a while, I have one that allows me to understand what she goes through on a nightly basis, because oftentimes I'm not very sensitive to her when she wakes up in a panic about something, and I'm like, hon, it's just a dream. And I had one of those this morning, which kind of got me thinking about this, particularly in this message but I can't even remember what it was about anymore. I just remember the feeling of waking up and feeling like I was in an altered reality. And I, I thought to myself, is this what some people wake up like every morning? Like feeling like they have to come back to reality in order to function the rest of the day? But I remember having dreams like that as a kid. And one that was a recurring one for me, and I don't know if you've had this one, it's one of the classic ones, the eternal fall like you're falling and you just can't stop and you can't stop and you're just falling and falling. Well, I had one that had a little bit more teeth on it because I had one where I was basically falling through my bed. And this was as, I mean, I'm seven, eight years old. I'm falling through my bed and the, it, the ground opens up and what I see beneath me is hell. And I'm falling and falling and falling into hell. And I know that's where I'm going, but I never stop falling. How great of a dream does that sound like? Anybody else have that one? I'm the only one. A couple, a couple of people. Yeah, see, how many have had the dream of falling? Like, the, yeah, a lot. Yeah. So I, I remember having that dream, and I remember how, like, fearful it made me. I remember having conversations with my mom about, like, what does this mean? And I'm, you know, seven, eight years old, and I'm freaking out. And here's what I look back on that, and I think, man, the devil is a terrible, evil if you think the devil is that little red guy on someone's shoulder with a pitchfork, you've got it all wrong. He is a terrible, merciless, evil person that spreads lies and speaks lies to every single person in this room, trying to tear you down and pull you away from God, even in the mind of a seven and eight-year-old trying to convince him that he was falling through his bed and going to hell, Right? So that, that's one thing that I think and I reflect back on. But it also made me think of this, kind of that kind of being scared of those things. And when we look at our passage for tonight in 2 Peter chapter 3, when we're talking about the second coming of the Lord, and one of the things that the, it says is that he's going to come like a thief in the night. And I remember that, that feeling of being scared that I was going to be left out. And I remember going to church, and I'm sure they did it with good intentions, but it was a ridiculous thing to do. Uh, they showed this video and I can't remember how old I was. I'll bet my wife remembers this because we grew up kind of together. It was this weird video. This is back in the 80s. And the video was probably made in the 70s. And it was kind of one of these like scared straight tactics. And what the video was, all I remember from the video is it starts and there's these like teenagers who are like coming from a party or something. And maybe they had been drinking or whatever, doing something terrible in the Bible Belt of America's eyes that was going to take them straight to hell. And they're driving in an old, gigantic station wagon. You know the ones? They're huge. They've got three rows of seat and the wood paneling on the sides of the outside. 
And all of a sudden, something happens, and the driver, like, disappears. And maybe one of the kids in the back seat disappears. They veer off the road, and they crash into a tree, and they're trying to figure out what happened. Well, of course, what had happened in the mind's eye of this was what happened? The rapture. Which I'm not even sure if that whole concept is biblical, and I don't want to open that whole can of worms tonight. That's not what we're, what we're doing, what we're getting into. I will confirm this. We're clearly speaking about the second coming of Christ. Jesus is coming back. I 100% believe in that. But the concept of the rapture that has inspired multiple books in the Left Behind series and multiple movies in the Left Behind series, I'm not sure necessarily biblically what I think about that. But that's what the whole point was. The rapture has occurred. People are disappearing out of their clothes. We don't know what's going on. On, and the rest of the whole video was them dealing with the devastation that they had been left behind. And it was supposed to freak you out. And lo and behold, it did a good job because everybody was freaked out. And we're all little kids and we don't know what's going on. You know what I mean? I just want to assure you that as we open the Bible and we look into 2 Peter chapter 3, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to try and use some scare tactic and, and talk about that, but I do want to talk about realities. I do want to be real about what the Bible says and what truth is. And I want us to have an understanding of what Peter was talking about. You know, when you come to the Bible, and if, if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open to 2 Peter chapter 3 right now. Sometimes you turn to a, a passage of scripture, and I think of like the book of James and certain parts of the books of Ephesians, even some of these epistles where you open up a certain portion of scripture, and you read it, and you take it at face value, and it immediately applies to your life. It's telling you to do something. It's telling you to be something. It's telling you not to be something else, and you can immediately read it, and at face value, you're immediately like gleaning stuff from it. You're getting stuff from it. Then there's other passages that you come to and you're a little bit confused by. And like, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what's happening here. How, what does this mean to me? And that's kind of one of the passages that we come to in 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to encourage you, when I come to passages like that, and in fact, when I come to most passages, I tend to try and ask myself three questions. And the three questions that we're going to try and answer tonight as we look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, in this series that you guys have been going through where Peter is kind of trying to help people or tell people, hey, listen, this is kind of my swan song. This is one of the last times I'm going to get to talk to my people, to the churches. Here are the things I want you to remember. So as we move through these first 10 verses, here's the questions I ask. What does it say? It's a pretty simple thing, right? What does it say or what's going on here? Like what's happening? I need to understand that. Then the second question I ask is, what does it mean, or what did it mean to the original readers of the text? Like the people who saw this first, what did they think? What did they get out of it? And then the last question I understand, or last question I ask is, what does it mean to me? Or what is this passage asking me to think or do differently than I currently am? And when I say, what does it mean to me, don't mistake that either, because when you come to Scripture you're not looking for some mystical meaning for you and for you alone. Uh, someone told me this a long time ago when coming to the Bible, and it's been very, very helpful for me in Bible study, right? The Bible, when you come to a passage, it has one interpretation. It has one meaning. Like, God meant what he meant when he said it, and that's what it means. But there are many applications. 
That means that because the word of God is living and active and the Holy Spirit is living and active, he can apply the original meaning, the truth of that scripture to me in a lot of different ways. So understand that when I say, what does it mean to me? I'm not saying find some mysterious meaning for you and you alone. I need to know what it means for real. And then I need to know how do I apply that to my life? What am I being asked to do or think differently than I was before I ran into this passage today? So let's begin to try and answer those first two questions. What does it say? What's going on? And what did it mean to the original readers as we kind of work our way through the text? So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Now this is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. And by that means of these, the world that then existed was deluged or deluged uh, with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I think you can see what I'm saying when I say Some texts are straightforward and plain, and some are not. Like, if you have a really good understanding of Scripture, maybe you're connecting some of these, like, what seem like veiled statements. You're connecting them to maybe other stories in the Bible. But if you're somewhat new to the Bible or not, like, super, like, like have a great mind for trying to figure out riddles and keys, you're going, what in the world is Peter talking about? Like, this sounds really, really confusing. So let me let you in on what's going on. In, in Peter's world, what has happened is that Jesus Christ has come and he has walked the earth. He has lived. He has died on the cross for our sins, for my sin, for your sin. And he has been resurrected from the dead. And you go, okay, now that sounds pretty crazy, but you, here's what you need to understand. It doesn't just say he was resurrected from the dead. He actually appeared to over 500 people. And this is some 50 or 60 years at, well, less than that. This is less than that. This is some 20 or 30 years after that fact. So you're in this church that Peter is writing to, and you know someone who knows someone whose aunt actually saw the resurrected Christ. Like, like this is not something to you that's a mystery. This is a reality to you the same way that it should be a reality to us. And what Jesus said after that is that, hey, I'm going to be with my father, but I'm coming back. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter 1, I think it is, you don't have to, don't turn there, but let me just read to you this. It's called the ascension, Jesus going up. So Jesus has died, he's been resurrected, he's, he's walking the earth, he appears to many people, and we're only 20 or 30 years removed from that, and Peter's writing to this church, and this is what had happened after he appeared to those 500 people. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He's saying, are you going to fix everything that's broken? Is it is now the time? Because God has made promises all throughout scripture that we live in this jacked up sinful world because Adam and Eve sinned and cast the world into sin. None of us are any better. We would have done the same thing. And we now bear that nature. It's true to us. It's a reality for us. And we all know it. 
If you're too prideful to admit that you're a sinner and that you're capable of sin, then I'm going to pray that God would reveal that truth to you. But I'm looking at this room and I see a bunch of really smart young people. I don't think anybody in here would deny that they are sinful and capable of sin, right? The world has been cast into sin. Jesus comes on a rescue mission and he says, I'm going to save you and I'm going to save the world. I'm going to redeem the world. I'm going to make it the way that it was supposed to be. So that's what they're asking. Is this the time? And he says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's saying, listen, Jesus is saying to them, it's not time now. What's going to happen now is the season that we're in right now, where Jesus says, I want you to be my people. I want you to show other people in the world who I am. I want you to show them my love and my grace and my peace and my compassion and my mercy that other people would know me. That's the season that we're entering right now. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, who do you stand looking into heaven? Or why do you stand looking into heaven? I'm sorry. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come to you in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So this is just one passage of many that references the fact that Jesus will be coming back. Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 26, myriads of places in the prophets allude to and mention the fact that Jesus will come again. So this is the information they have in 2 Peter. And a mis understanding or a misnomer was going around, and we see this not just in 2 Peter, but we see it in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, other places in Scripture, where because they're, they're, only, they're only a small amount removed from Jesus saying that, they're waiting on pins and needles. They're thinking, it's been 20 years, it's been 30 years, it's been 40 years, he's got to be coming back now. They were under the, 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 the impression that he was going to come back soon. And there are places in scripture that if you don't read them super carefully, it really alludes to that or almost seems like it promises that he's going to come back soon. And so they were running into a lot of problems within the church. Okay, what are we doing? What are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to be managing this? And so what Peter is saying and he's addressing is that now there are people who are coming into the church going, hey, you idiot Christians who said Jesus was coming back. He hadn't come back. His promises must not be true. What, what are you, what, what's up, guys? And Peter is warning him, listen, don't listen to these. He calls them scoffers or false teachers. Don't listen to them. They're just being carried away by their evil desires and their evil passions. And Peter says, let me explain some things to you. And in verses 4 through 7, he says, they will say, the scoffers, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're saying nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Jesus hasn't come back. And, and why do you think he will? For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of, out of water and through water by the word of God. And by that means, so what does that mean? By that means, by the means of the water of these, the world that then existed, existed, sorry, was deluged with water and perished. What do you think that's talking about? The flood. So the flood, Genesis chapter four, Genesis chapter six, Genesis chapter six, the flood. He's saying, listen, 
These same idiots who are scoffing and saying, where is this Jesus who's supposed to be coming back, who says he's going to come back and judge the world and do all these things, where is he? Saying, this same God who said that he is going to do this is the same one that said he would ruin the world with a flood. He would, he would basically judge the world with a flood. The scoffers said, oh yeah, like it's going to rain, Noah, like it's going to rain, and then what happened? It rained like it never had before, ever in the history of the earth. It flooded the entire land, and only Noah and his family were saved. Peter's saying, listen, these people aren't even listening to history. These people that are saying that Jesus, you know, how can you believe in this? They're saying, in verse 7, he says, by the same word, the same word that said, hey, the flood is coming, and it did come, by that same word, the heavens and the earth that are now or that now exists, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Saying, listen, there is coming a time, and though we don't know the time or the hour, though we don't know all the details, the Bible is really, really clear. There is a time coming where Jesus is going to come back to the earth, and he is going to judge the ungodly. Talks about a purifying fire, which is really interesting, because we've, if you come here on Sundays, we've been talking through the book of Malachi, and a lot of that imagery of the refiner's fire, like being refined by fire, like the way gold is. That it basically, you, you refine gold, you heat it up super hot, it turns to a liquid, and all of the impurities rise to the top, and they brush them off so that the only thing left is pure gold. Saying, listen, that's going to happen to the world when Jesus comes back to judge it, and he's going to take those who know him, who love him, who have repented, who have believed on him for salvation, and he's going to resurrect them, and they're going to get to enjoy his renewed and restored creation with him forever. That is a reality. That is what's going to happen. That is the true story of the world. And Peter's encouraging them, don't lose faith, don't lose hope. And then he goes on and he says this in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Uh, wait a second, Peter. I think you've lost your mind here. You just said with God one day is as a thousand and also a thousand is as one. Well, which is it, Peter? Like, is God moving faster in time than we are, or is God moving slower in time than we are? How can it be one is a thousand and a thousand is one? His point is not trying to give you an algorithm to figure out the timing of God. <laughs> Too many people have done that. In fact, ridiculous people go, oh, a thousand days is one, and they add them up, and then they look at the book of Daniel, and they're telling you what date they think Jesus is coming back, which is ridiculous, okay? The Bible says that even Jesus, when he walked the earth as a human, right, he didn't know the time or the day that, that he was coming back. So how in the world could we figure it out? How in the world could we know it? God the Father alone knows this information. What he's saying is, listen, God does not function in time the way that you do. So you thinking that God said he was coming back soon and you feel like soon has passed, that's irrelevant to God. His timing is not your timing. In verse 9, he goes on to say, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away. And by heavens, he doesn't mean heaven like the place, our eternal resting place. The heavens is like the sky and the atmosphere. The heavens will pass away. Part of creation will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies, the earth and the planets, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth 
and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And while tonight is not the night to get into a huge conversation about eschatology or end times, and I don't want to parse the words about what it means dissolved and destroyed and burned up, here's what we know. God, through Christ, is going to judge and refine the world through fire. And he is going to rebuild a new heavens and a new earth for the eternal resting place for those who know him, love him, and have become his children through salvation. And so that's what he's saying. And he's saying that is going to happen like a thief, like a thief in the night. No one will know when that happens. And he's saying if you think that God is taking too long, you need to understand a couple things. You need to understand something about the patience of God. That God has a true desire that people would come to repentance. And he is patiently waiting for us, the church, to share the truth of the gospel with as many people as we can. God is patient. We also need to understand God's timing. And we'll talk about that in a second. So we understand what's going on here. There's a church that has a little bit of a misconception. Peter's trying to instruct it. It was a common misconception that maybe God was supposed to be coming back and why wasn't he? And then there's people who are doubting him and doubting what he said. And Peter is trying to explain some of those things. So we understand what it means. But here's what I want to know. So what does that mean for us? So what? So what that this is what was going on in Peter's day? What does that mean for me? And there's three things that I feel like this passage, and there's more. There's tons of different ways that we could apply this to our lives. But there's three things that I noticed, three calls that I feel like this passage makes to us tonight. The first one is this, a call to soberness. I struggled when I wrote that down because it sounds really not fun. Who wants to be called sober-minded? Man, that guy is really sober-minded. That sounds boring. It sounds like the guy is the ultimate party pooper. And here's what I want to explain to you, that if you're truly sober-minded in the way that this talks about it, right, there's a little twist in there, right? This is not the guy who's a party pooper. This is the guy who knows where the party is. This is the guy who knows where to invest all of his energy because he's the guy who's thinking clearly. He's the guy who's thinking purely. He's the guy who's thinking within the scope of reality. And so here's, I got a question for you. Corey mentioned that sometimes you guys will take a, a break in the middle of kind of the teaching and discuss something around your tables. So the obvious thing for me that I want you guys to discuss, particularly coming out of this point, is a question about what would your life look like if you knew that Jesus was coming back? I thought about this not in reference to necessarily Jesus coming back, but the brevity of life, and all of you probably thought about this. We tend to think about it more. You know, people die every day. We, we know that, right? But when someone famous dies, somehow it has a moment of pause for almost everybody because you just didn't think it was going to happen to them or could happen to him. So on January 26, we're up at winter camp with the student ministries, and we're getting ready to come back down, and I'm hearing reports pop up on my phone that a helicopter has crashed, and Kobe Bryant has died, along with his daughter and I think seven other people that were in the helicopter. That is crazy. I guarantee you that when Kobe Bryant got in that helicopter, he did not think these were going to be the last hours of his life. And I guarantee you that when we think about it, we start to take kind of captive some of the moments in our life and we start to think about like, 
Like, what am I living for? What am I doing? Is, is the, the direction I'm headed the right direction? And so maybe around your tables, when I think about this idea of a call to soberness, I want you to ask this question. What would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Jesus is coming back tomorrow. What would you do? And then I want you to kind of, it's kind of a three-part question. How would that differ if I said that Jesus was coming back exactly one year from tomorrow? So Jesus is coming back tomorrow or Jesus is coming back one year um, from tomorrow. What's different in your answers and why? Okay, go. I'll give you five minutes. All right, hopefully you had some uh, good conversation. Throw a couple things out there. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. What do you do? What do you think? Anybody? What? Live more intentionally for the next 24 hours. Huh? You know, I said so first. Jesus is coming back in 24 hours. What do you do? You know, maybe you should listen, Corey. I mean, I know this is kind of your thing and everything, but, you know. So Jesus is coming back in 24 hours. Yeah, yes. There you go. Yeah. Like desperately with, like, maybe even aggression. Yeah, yeah, right, right. It's happening. Right. Okay, yeah, Eddie. There's an awe, like awestruck kind of, yeah. And there's realities there, yeah, yeah. Getting really excited to go home. Getting really excited to go home, that's a reality. That's right. Like here, here's a part of the deal. When you say getting really excited to go home and party with Jesus, I don't want to be trivial about it when I say that, but there is a reality. When I said being sober-minded is not being the party pooper, it's about knowing where the party is, like what Peter is asking for is a reality check. He, he, and he's asking us, he's inviting us into it. Like, listen, the coming of Jesus is a reality. It's not some far off thing, and it could happen anytime. It could happen anytime. It could happen right now while we're in here together. Like, there aren't these massive amount of conditions that all need to be met that we can kind of calculate and figure it out. Just as, you know, Kobe Bryant gets on that helicopter, doesn't know it's going to be his last day on earth, that can happen for us. And, and, and there's a reality to going, okay, I know what's important, therefore I'm going to live in a certain way that reflects knowing what's important. And now when I talk about a year, so you have a little bit more time. Let's say now you've got a year. So Corey, now you have a year, so you're living more intentionally. What, what else are people doing with the year that they have before Jesus comes? Yeah, Alec. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we all have stuff like that, things that we regret when we're honest. And praise God for the gift of his son, Jesus, and the grace that we receive through his death on the cross that, I mean, crud, if I felt like at the end of that year I had to prove my worth to Christ, I would be desperate. You know, that would be terrible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate your honesty, guys. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Totally. That's great. That's great. Sometimes you can feel things that like, when you're not thinking about like God coming back like now, we ignore the little promptings of the Spirit sometimes, and it would probably take on a whole new meaning if we knew he was coming back. I think the key in this, particularly when it relates to being sober-minded, is not in the specific things that you would do, but I want to gather them together for generalities, okay? Because I, I wondered if this would happen, like no one said it, but you know, if I'm uh, if I know Jesus is coming back in a year and I know I'm going to heaven, I'm going to give all my money away. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to only focus on certain things. I'm going to sell all my possessions or give them all away because what does it matter anyway? I know what's going to happen in a year. So I don't need to worry about a job. I don't need to worry about savings. I don't need to worry about all those things, right? Those are not good applications to real life, okay? So when I ask you, like, okay, why don't we live the way that we would live if we knew Jesus was coming back? Why don't we live that way now? I'm not talking about specifics like that, but generalities, right? If you think, well, money wouldn't matter, so I'd give it away. So here's the question. Why aren't we more generous? Why aren't we more, more giving? It doesn't mean that I have to give it all away because then I become a drain on society and that would be foolishness. But why am I not more giving? If I think to myself, I have a burden for my family members who I know don't know Jesus, then the question is not I'm going to call them tonight and badger them and be aggressive with them as if Jesus was coming back in 24 hours. But why do I not speak the name of Jesus more often? Why am I not sharing it more often? These are the practical questions that a sober-minded person asks. The reality is the world presses in around you every day of your life. And what Peter is saying is, listen, I want you to push out the worldly philosophies, the worldly values, the worldly things that are constantly coming around you. I want you to push those away with a soberness, a sincerity, a, an, an understanding of reality. The word literally means in verse 1, it literally means pure, clean, genuine, real, without spot. He's saying, I want your mind to be a pure, clean canvas that I get to work with. Not one that's littered with all these ideas and thoughts of the world. There's so many questions we ask. Like, what's really important? What should I value? And in what order? What should I do with my life? And maybe that's way too grand of a question. Maybe it's just, what should I do today? And if there's too much of the world's values, the world's philosophies seeping into our thinking, we are not clear. We're not sober. We're not thinking reality. How many, did any of you guys watch the Oscars? Yeah, like five of you. So this is going nowhere. Yeah, listen, maybe you read Twitter or Instagram and saw Joaquin Phoenix get hammered for his self-indulgent speech after getting the award for Joker, right? Now, 
I didn't think it was that bad. I didn't agree with everything that he said. And I understand why people are like, listen, just be thankful for the award. Don't use it as your soapbox to preach to the world about your values. But what I noticed in it, and if you go back and rewatch it, this is a man who is troubled. He's troubled by the world's philosophies. He, he doesn't know how to answer these questions. He doesn't know how to answer the question, what's really important? What should I value and in what order? What should I do with my life? He's try, he is struggling through trying to encourage the world to have answers for those questions, but he doesn't have them. God does. And he's saying, be sober. Think reality. Know where the party is. Know where to invest your effort. Know where to invest your time. Know where to invest your money. That's the first thing. The second thing he says, or, or, or the second call that I see in here is a call to patience. And you probably could kind of figure that one out, a call to patience, because there's this whole little section in verse 8, but do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is his day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but we need to be patient. All over scripture, we are told and called to wait on the Lord. We're told that actually waiting on the Lord like, is an investment in our character. It actually grows us. It draws us closer to Christ. And so one thing I want to tell you about in verse 8 and 9, this, the day, day with the Lord is a thousand and a thousand is with a day. I don't know if you ever thought about this. There are concepts in the Bible that we have no way to 100% relate to. I think about this with the Trinity, right? God is three in one. And it's a concept that as soon as I think I can start to wrap my little pea brain around it, like I ask myself one more question and the whole thing explodes. It's like the Trinity is three in one. God is three persons in one. Not one, three people that he's one at a time. That's modalism. You don't want to believe that. That's not what the Bible says. He's literally three in one. And I've heard people talk about it. Well, you know, it's like H2O. H2O can be a water, a gas, or a vapor. Three in one. It's like, uh, no, because H2O can't be vapor, water, and gas all at the same time simultaneously. But the Trinity says that it is. Someone says, well, it's like an egg. There's the shell and the yolk and the egg white. And it's like, yeah, but the white is not the yolk and the yolk is not the shell and the shell is not the... It, it breaks down and it blows your mind. This is another one of those concepts. God is above time. God created time for us. God is not living in the constraint of time. That's why you say a day is like a thousand and a thousand is like a day. It's like God doesn't like abide by your laws of time. You're finite little human beings and you needed dates and times or else your mind would explode and you'd vaporize. But God is not constrained by that. So when you say, I think God should be coming back soon, he says, yeah, I am coming back soon because it's all the same to me. And we need to understand that and we need to understand why he does what he does because God is patient and therefore it is a call to us to be patient. Some of you are going through really difficult things in your life. And maybe you've cried out to God and you've prayed and you said, God, please rescue me from this or please fix this or please do something about this. And then you look and you see passages like Psalms 27, 4 and it says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty in the temple and inquire in his temple. And then you read Isaiah 40, 31, and it says, even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but those who wait on the Lord 
shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. We're called to wait on the Lord. And it's a very interesting phrase. It has a lot of meanings, ones that you would think of, like place your hope in, to wait for. But there's another interesting one. It means bound together like the cords of a rope. Now, the cords of a rope are braided together or twisted together. So I'm supposed to do that with the Lord, wait on the Lord. And here's the, it's a beautiful picture. It's an incredible imagery, what patience really is, what waiting on the Lord really is. It means that I bind myself with him and his will. It means that I am bound together in him. Then my strength is renewed. Then all of a sudden I'm encouraged because I'm like, God, I don't want to run ahead of you. If you think I need to be in this situation longer, I don't want to be out of it any quicker than you want me out of it. I'm bound together with you. I'm entwined with you and your will. I don't want something that you don't want. I don't want to do something that would be out of your timing. Because lo and behold, so often in scripture, so often in life, we see that the very thing that we wanted out of now, God rescue me now, he is using in our life to form us more into the image of Jesus. He's using in our life to draw us closer to him. And that's the very thing that is best for us. The thing that is best for us is when we are moved back to a dependence on Christ. Every day, every day, I find myself depending on me and thinking about what I should do and what I want instead of depending on Christ and thinking about what he wants for me and what I should be doing in his strength. When he draws me back, that is his grace. And so patience and waiting on the Lord is having unison with his will in my life, being braided together with him and not desiring to run ahead. So there is this call to patience, not just when it comes to the return of Christ, but also a call to patience and a call to waiting on the Lord in every perspective of my life. There's a, there's a call to patience. That verb, the, the wait for, to look for, to long for, to hope for, but that idea of being twisted together with him um, that bound together is great. And I, I want to say this in patience. We see two things in understanding God's timing. One, he's patient with us. He wants people to know Christ. So, so that means that we need to have an urgency about responding to that. And then secondly, he is purposeful us during the waiting. He's purposeful with us when he's patient. He is not far off twiddling his thumbs, waiting for us to grin and bear it through the situation. He's with us. What he does, he always does for a reason. And it's quite possibly that this understanding of patience and waiting on the Lord is the deeper understanding and the deeper theology behind Romans 8.28, right? That says that he always does what is good and right for those who love him. And you go, I don't feel like what's going on in my life right now is good or right. Well, if I understand what patience means, if I understand what waiting on the Lord means, then all of a sudden I start to see, okay, I get it. I can trust you. You're always doing what is good and right to those who love you. And then thirdly, so we talked about um, a call to soberness, reality, thinking the way God thinks about things, a call to patience, and then lastly, a call to obedience. And again, I know these words are generic. This isn't rocket science. This isn't like crazy, oh man, I can't believe that. I've never heard that before. But, but a call to obedience. I thought I could have said righteous living or good works, but here's the point. The very end of verse 10 he says, listen, Jesus is coming back. That's a fact. 
And someone, I think, over here said it. I just feel like I would really try and live more obediently to Christ. Well, the reality is he is coming back. And when he does, there's a scary but incredible phrase at the, verse, at the end of verse 10. I'll just read the whole verse. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I could turn to 1 Corinthians. In fact, I'll just read it for you. 1 Corinthians says this. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. It means the day of the Lord when he returns. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. And if that work, or if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We're not going to dive into all of the meanings of that passage. Like I said, we're not going to jump into a big old conversation on eschatology. But here's what the Bible makes really, really clear. When we do things obediently for the Lord, with proper motivation, in the power of the Spirit, those things last through the refiner's fire. The only things that we do on this earth that are eternal are things done in obedience, like pure obedience to Christ. Because everything else is going to burn up. Everything else that we do will be exposed for why we did it, the motivations behind it, what was done. And the things that aren't done for Christ, motivated by his love, motivated by our love for him, those things will burn in the end. And so there's absolutely a call to obedience, a call to say, okay, listen, what am I living my life for? When I ask myself those questions, what am I doing? What should my life be about? What should I wrap my life around? What's really important? Where is the real party? He gives us the answer to those questions. And the answer to those questions calls us to a soberness. It calls us to a patience. And it calls us to an obedience. And that's kind of where we're going to stop because next week, Corey is going to take you kind of through the end of the book and give you some really practical stuff because Peter doesn't leave you hanging. He gives you some really practical stuff about what it means to live obediently in light of the fact that Jesus is absolutely coming back. So just remember those things. A call to soberness, reality, a reality check. Like what's, what's real? What's actually going to happen? A call to soberness, call to patience, and a call to obedience. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for uh, tonight. God, thank you so much for just these guys and, God and gals and how much they, they listen. Um, God, um, I'm, I'm always amazed um, at, at the attentiveness of, of your people and, God, the attentiveness of people who maybe don't even know you. Um, God, I, I'm so thankful um, that you give us your word. God, that you give us your truth. God, I pray that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed. God, you would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. God, I pray that, uh, God, that these words um, spoken by Peter in 2 Peter 3, God, that they would, um, God, that they would, change the way that we think, change the way that we live, God, that we would, we would take them to heart, and God, that we would um, recognize what you are calling us to. God, I pray this all in your precious name. Amen. Well, I want to take a moment just before the guys lead us in worship and, and give, lead you guys to, just in a moment of prayer um, around your tables. 
um, a way to just respond to the message, a simple way to respond to the message. And so I just kind of wrote this statement and whatever part of it kind of hits you, whatever part of it kind of you feel that maybe God is kind of moving in you, it's totally fine. Focus on that within your prayer and maybe gather three or four people, five people around you and, and pray in a group. Let's ask God, here's what I wrote, let's ask God to make us more mindful of his presence in our everyday lives and his promise to come back. That we would not only be aware of it, but that we would hope in it and truly look forward to it. So I'll read that again. Let's ask God to make us more mindful of his presence in our everyday lives and his promise to come back. That we would not only be aware of it, but that we would place all of our hope in it and that we would truly look forward to it. Take a second and pray, and then the guys will lead you.